We pray, amen. <laughs> Some people had a different mindset. They did. You meant, let's, you meant it let's made Let's going to go back to the Bible, though. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and show the video there, Kevin, all right? Well, you both presented very convincing arguments. Uh, on the one hand, Elaine, your promise was given in haste, but was it not still a promise? Hmm? <laughs> and Kramer, you did provide a service in exchange for compensation, but does the fee, once paid, not entitle the buyer to some assurance of reliability? Hmm? Huh? Uh, these were not easy questions to answer. Not for any man. But I have made a decision. We will cut the bike down the middle and give half to each of you. What? This is your solution to ruin the bike? All right, fine, fine. Go ahead. Cut the stupid thing in no, half. No, no, no. Give it to her. I'd rather it belong to another than see it destroyed. But Newman, give it to her, I beg you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, not so fast, Elaine. Only the bike's true owner would rather give it away than see it come to harm. Kramer, the bike is yours. What? Sweet justice. Newman, you are wise. But this isn't fair. Uh, look at my neck is still hurting me, and now you have the bike? Well, tell it to the judge, honey. I'm going for a ride. There are two things in this world that are timeless, God's truth and Seinfeld. Um, <clears throat> do you remember the story about Solomon and the baby? That's, it's, it's a great little spoof, and it's great because today we're continuing in this series on the life of Joseph we called Surviving in Egypt. For those of you that are maybe brand new to the series, Egypt is simply a metaphor for the world, how to survive as children of God in this world. And so that's the idea we're looking at. Today is lesson or sermon number 24 in the series. It's called Wisdom in Egypt. So crucial to surviving in Egypt is wisdom in knowing how to balance the pressures of earthly and eternal responsibilities. And all of us are faced daily with decisions that put heavenly and earthly wisdom in complete conflict. So how do we balance this need, right, for Egyptian success or worldly success and heavenly wisdom or heavenly approval? So today what we're going to do in the life of Joseph is we're going to study a great example of heavenly wisdom and its three key ingredients. And I want you to understand, this is what I want to get through your head today. There are three key ingredients to wisdom. Shrewdness, innocence, and unity. Shrewdness, innocence, and unity. Now I know this message is not going to be nearly as emotional as the last few weeks. Some of the things that we learned from God's Word the last couple of weeks really grabbed some of you by the heart and you shared it with me and the Word of God is powerful that way. Today is not that type of message. If you came here hoping to leave crying in tears of happiness, that's not going to happen. <laughs> But it is important that today's truth stick with you. Shrewdness, innocence, unity. I want these things to stick in your head like an annoying commercial jingle. Like that Cars for Kids commercial. <laughs> I just want that to be the case, that all week you're thinking about these three words. 
So that's my goal today is to leave you with a working definition of wisdom that will impact your daily interactions with Egypt. So let's look at the history. We like to look at each passage in three ways, historical, theological, and spiritual. History, what about man? What is he doing? Why and how does he do it? We're covering a lot of scripture today, but I'm only going to read a few verses. We're talking about in verse, um, in verse 47, uh, historically speaking, Joseph's grain market that he comes up with. Now, Joseph is in a unique situation, right? His family's back with him. We've talked about all that, the emotional stuff, but all that is gone now. And now he has to deal with feeding the world. But he has to feed the world with very limited resources. Not only does he have to feed the world with very limited resources, he has to be a good steward of everything that his boss and friend Pharaoh has trusted him with. In addition to that, he has to feed the world with limited resources, be a good steward of Pharaoh's stuff, and also at the same time keep his integrity as a follower of the God of Abraham. And the pressure to be compassionate, it seems like an impossible task. I mean, look, your first thought is, well, you got a lot of food, just give it to hungry people. Well, he can't just give everything away. That will bankrupt the country. But he can't let people starve. Understand what's gone on during the seven years of plenty. <clears throat> Joseph spent a ton of Pharaoh's money buying grain buying food from farmers and storing it up for the famine. They invested a lot. As a matter of fact, had Joseph been wrong and the famine never came, Pharaoh's administration would probably have gone away because it had nothing left or close to it. So Joseph must serve Pharaoh's government. He must feed the world and he must honor God all at once. And so what he does, he comes up with this grain market. And the first thing I want you to see, after buying all this food for years from the farmers and storing it up, preparing for the terrible seven years of famine that were to come, once the famine started, Joseph began to run a highly efficient, effective operation. The first thing they do, obviously, is money for food. First, everyone has tons of money. He's been paying them for seven years for their excess grain. They were selling the grain during the times of plenty, and everything's good. Oh, yeah, we don't have any food. I mean, the famine's bad, and things aren't growing. There's no rain, but that's okay. Joseph's got plenty. He'll sell it to us. How long could this famine last? A year? Two years? But sooner or later, they run out of money. And they come to Joseph and say, listen, what good is it is if we starve? We're, we don't have any money left. And Joseph's tell you what, you're out of money. Your money's gone. The fields can't really provide for your livestock anyway. Just give us your livestock. I mean, it's become a liability for most of these people to begin with. They can't water them. They can't feed them. So they might as well give them the cattle that's otherwise going to die. The land's not producing anything. So they start giving cattle for food. Now Pharaoh has all the livestock. By the way, whose family oversaw taking care of Pharaoh's livestock? More on this later. It's very important. And after a while, the money's gone. All the cattle's gone. And they come to Joseph once again and say, we're going to starve. What do we do? We don't have any more money. We don't have any more cattle. Joseph says, don't worry. I know all your livestock's gone. All your money's gone. Your land at this point is useless. There's no rain. There's no food on it. There's no cattle to graze on it. 
Give me land, and I will give you all the food you need. By the way, who's going to need the land to take care of all this cattle that Joseph's been collecting? More on that later. I mean, think about it. What good in Egypt is money, cattle, and land if you're going to die of starvation? Probably, if you think about it, it's a fair price to pay for survival, is it not? So that's where we start off. And now we go to Genesis 47, 23 to 27. This is at the end of all that, right? It's at the end there, and everything's taking place, and the famine's about to end, and he's taking all the food, and the, he's taking all the money, and the cattle, and the land, and everything. And then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh, but here now, but here is seed for you. Go out and sow the land just like you did before. And at the harvest, just give one-fifth, 20% tax, basically is what it is. Give 20% tax to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for all your little ones. And they said, here's what the people responded. You ripped us off, Joseph. You took advantage of us. No, that's not what they said. What did they say? You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel, Jacob's family, the line of Jesus, settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruit fruitful and multiplied greatly. What we see here is that Egypt truly is grateful for this process, this, and really what it is here, some might say Joseph is really taking advantage of these poor people, this terrible situation. I'm wrong. This is Joseph coming up with a way to reconstruct Egyptian society during a time of crisis. It's a 20% tax. It's sort of like a feudalistic system, which became very common in Britain and European history. Pharaoh becomes the benefactor, and the people are the tenants. They have everything they need. They work hard. They're rewarded for their work. Certainly, Pharaoh is happy. Not only has his country survived the worst famine on record, Joseph's shrewdness has created for Pharaoh even more wealth. Then look at the response of the people. This is, what's the, this is the amazing thing. They are grateful. Joseph has brought them all through the famine. Not only, the, not only that, but Joseph has done so with tremendous integrity. No skimming off the top, no treachery, no deception, nothing like that. He has been shrewd and innocent. But what we see else is amazing is Israel, the nation of Israel, is fruitful. You see the last part about Israel gaining possession? Israel, Joseph's family, was a huge part of this incredible plan. Joseph did not do this alone. More on this later, but understand, his family and their skills as shepherds was, an, was a crucial ingredient to Joseph's Egyptian success. So that's the history of the passage. What about the spiritual? What about God? What is he doing? I want to talk about wisdom's ingredients. So each day during this famine, right, Joseph is faced with these weighty decisions, Imagine the internal deliberations while balancing compassion, stewardship, politics, integrity, loyalty to friendship. 
Our first assessment would be to credit how skilled Joseph is, right? Wow, he has gifts and talents, etc. But I'm going to tell you, Joseph would have been an absolute colossal failure without the ingredients of wisdom at work in his life. First thing I want to see is this heavenly connection he has. Joseph was dependent upon constant communication with God for his success. First of all, we know he does it in prayer. Joseph knew God had put him in this position, and he understood the desperate need of God's guidance. He asked for it when he was in prison. He asked for it when he was a slave. He no doubt spent time in prayer over how to be effective, morally straight. How do I be loyal? How do I make you smile, Heavenly Dad? Constantly thinking and asking God about discernment and wisdom in these things. You know what else he had? He had revelation. Remember the interpretation of the dreams that kind of elevated Joseph to begin with? I mean, that was all straight from God. He would never have known to prepare for this famine if God hadn't revealed that it was coming. Think about that for a minute. That's one example of how the constant connection to God is absolutely necessary and Joseph needed it. But you know what else he had? Not only did he have a heavenly connection, he had supernatural innocence. This might be, frankly, in my opinion, the biggest miracle in this story. How Joseph and family operated with immense integrity in Europe. I mean, Egypt. Same thing. No, I said like this. They surely had tremendous opportunities to skim off the top. In many ways, probably. Pharaoh won't notice this sheep or this money. I'm going to keep this little riverfront land plot for myself. But they are being guided by the power of God's spirit. It is not their own righteousness. It is God in them. More on that later. But then the last part, I want you to see what God does. He provides for them family unity. God knew that Joseph was going to need help to manage this famine. The hidden part of this story is how God brings Joseph's family back to Egypt to help him when he needed it the most. It is not just a case of his family riding on Joseph's successful coattails. No, no. Even with all his skills, he ended up needing them desperately for success. Egyptians didn't want to shepherd. In fact, there is historical evidence that it's possible because of the way the Nile made everything so easy in Egypt before the famine, it is possible that shepherding had become a lost art. Pharaoh, Joseph, and all of Egypt need Joseph's family to fill this important, crucial role during the famine or else there won't be any livestock left at the end of it. So in summary... These are the things that God gave Joseph for the task of feeding Egypt and the world during the time of famine. He gave them shrewdness, having or showing sharp powers of judgment. They were astute. They were shrewd. Shrewd sounds negative, doesn't it? It is not negative. They were definitely shrewd. Joseph was clearly shrewd. But God also gave them innocence, a life characterized by integrity, no corruption. Does it sound weird to put shrewdness and innocence together? But they are. They need to be. And then he also gave them unity. Joined for a common purpose, task, or calling. Remember all the stuff they had to go through to get that family reconciled? It was a mess. And now together they're saving Egypt. So that's the 
theological. What about God, the spiritual part? Let's talk about the personal. What, what about us? What are we supposed to do? Guess what? I'm going to talk about three words. Shrewd, innocent, and united. So this is a verse. I love when Jesus, well, I don't love it when Jesus said it because it's like, well, watch. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Uh, okay. So be shrewd as serpent and innocent as doves. So when I first read that verse, you know what my response, my response is? It's a very key point in this sermon. Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> Sending us out into the wolves like sheep. Just be shrewd and innocent. That's easy. This is my uh, social media campaign for this week. We won't survive Egypt without shrewdness, integrity, and unity. <clears throat> On the surface for me, just being vulnerable with you here for a moment, the story of Joseph's success can be discouraging because it almost seems like it's unattainable. Well, we could be Joseph. For years, that's how I felt when I tried to see with my own human eyes all that Joseph accomplished. And today, some of you might feel, maybe not in relation to Joseph, but some of you might be feeling this moment today, how in the world am I supposed to compete in Egypt? How can I be like Joseph? I don't have the skills. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. I don't have the relationships. How can I get ahead in Egypt? You don't get it. We together actually have access to all the tools that Joseph had. In fact, we have better tools than Joseph had. Let's talk about heavenly shrewdness. Now, we're talking about a shrewdness and a wisdom from a biblical context, not an Egyptian or worldly one. Wisdom in an Egyptian or worldly context has one goal. How can I get what I want? How can I win? But look what uh, Solomon says about shrewdness and wisdom. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is fleeting vapor and a snare of death. He does a great job contrasting heavenly wisdom with Egyptian wisdom or earthly wisdom. But see, it will be impossible to garner this type of wisdom in Egypt without constant communication with God. I love what James says. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men without reproach. In other words, freely, generously, and it will be given to him. And I've preached James before, and I explained what the picture really is, is if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who is literally sitting on the edge of his seat, wanting to take a fire hose of wisdom and douse it on you if you just ask. That's what God is wanting to do. So we see this heavenly shrewdness comes from, it's, it's, it's different than Egyptian shrewdness, but it only comes from a communication with God. And we have a connection with God's wisdom that is far superior than Joseph's little dreams. We have this word of God that we can access at any time, anywhere, and now with cell phones, any place, as long as the signal is good. <laughs> What's good about this is we can actually access God's wisdom when we're awake. <laughs> not just in bed dreaming. I think that was wise. I'm not sure. There was a donut flying through a cup of coffee. There's got to be something there. <laughs> So that's heavenly shrewdness. 
I want to talk about supernatural innocence. <clears throat> Look what Paul says in the book of Philippians. He, this is his hope. This is what Paul wants. And for them, being found in him, Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or religion or working hard, but that which comes through the faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we must maintain this commitment to making Heavenly Dad smile, but this is not going to be just through human effort. It is from the blessing of supernatural intervention, particularly and primarily through the gift of faith. Remember, I've told you guys that the ability to believe in God is not something you arrive at on your own intelligence and wisdom and discernment. It is a supernatural interaction and intervention with your natural thought process, your natural direction. And God says, no, that's not the way you're going to think anymore. You're going to think heavenly, spiritually, supernaturally, eternally. And now you will have a new type of wisdom and discernment and shrewdness. But then we have sovereign unity. So Solomon says this in Proverbs 15, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. There's safety among many counselors and wisdom in that. And as with Joseph, we see this is not something that we're going to be able to do alone. In fact, you will fail miserably if you try to isolate in your wisdom. The task of shrewdness and innocence on your own, whether it's in business or ministry or family or romance, relate, whatever, the task of these things on your own, it's overwhelming. It's impossible. It's sheer foolishness, really. Wisdom will tell you you don't have a prayer of surviving in Egypt without the rest of your church family. See, what God does, just like he did with Joseph, right? God reconciles unreconcilable people for a task that he has called them to, just as he did with Joseph's family, people that normally would have no reason to collaborate or connect at any level for anything, for any purpose. God brings them together for the most important task in human history. That is to feed a starving Egypt during a time of spiritual famine. And we must constantly be surrounded by the redeemed if we are going to thrive with shrewdness in Egypt. So I have a slide I'm going to put up there for you, and I'm just going to park it here for a little bit. Wisdom equals shrewdness. Innocence and unity. You want a working definition of wisdom? You fear, yeah, we all want to be wise, but what does it mean? I'm good at math. Is that what it? No, wisdom means this. You have shrewdness, innocence, and unity. Shrewdness from a communication with God. Innocence because he has saved you by grace through faith, not having your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. And then unity. He has saved a lot of people and brought us all together for a common task to go into the world and make disciples. Feeding a starving Egypt spiritually during a time of famine. He has sent us, he said himself, Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Go with shrewdness and innocence. He has sent us in the world to operate with shrewdness, innocence, and unity. He says, I send you, that is a plural you, I send you into the world, 
be shrewd and innocent. We can't sacrifice any elements of wisdom as we go about our Egyptian tasks, no matter the temptation. In other words, it's not just business. It is personal. It's etern- for us, it's eternal. You know what some of the things might get in the way of this wisdom that has shrewdness, innocence, and unity? Arrogance. I don't need you people. Love of money. That's a big one. Your zest and zeal and lust and drooling at the mouth for money can keep you from having shrewdness, innocence, and unity. Isolation. These are some of the main obstacles. Addiction. Obsession. Does these sound like shrewdness, innocence, and unity? As employees, employers, yes, even as customers, friends, family members, whatever our role in Egypt may be at that moment, all our decisions and behavior must be governed by wisdom that is characterized by shrewdness, innocence, and unity. Detaching any of them from your tasks in Egypt will create a lonely life of turmoil, crisis, shallow purpose, and a price too high for you to pay. Each day in our life must be filled with that wisdom that I've defined as shrewdness, innocence, and unity. And this will only happen with a constant connection and communication with God and with each other. You know, I said this in a podcast last year sometime. I said, people are out of their minds and they can can survive without the church. And I got like 13 or 14 emails from people, how dare you say that? We don't need the church. And they thought that I was talking about the church as a corrupt institution. I said, no, I'm talking about the church as the unreconcilable reconciled. (laughs) That God has called out of darkness into light given them the gift of faith, and called them together for one purpose, which is to go out as sheep among the wolves and be united, shrewd, and innocent. Heavenly Dad, this is an overwhelming task. We are, frankly, intimidated by the thought of being sheep among the wolves and maintaining shrewdness and innocence and unity. God, protect us with one another. Lord, give us the desire to cry out to you each day, God, how can I be shrewd? How can I be innocent? How can I be unified with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Help us to know what we need to do to be the most efficient, effective kingdom agents as possible to help feed spiritually a starving Egypt. Give us shrewdness. Keep us innocent. And make us unified.